Good morning. Good morning. Anyone paying attention to the cone of silence hymn? <laughs> yeah, that was really, that was really, a, first of all, it was beautiful. Thanks. Thank you, choir, for singing that, leading us in that. I don't know if anyone wants to look at this, but before I jump into what I was going to talk about, it was so interesting. So it's, it's Psalm, or it's hymn 286, juxtaposed with hymn 285. 285 is, we worship thee, God. And 286 is, no, we don't. I mean, that's Unitarianism. You know, I mean, right there on the page, it's very Jewish. But what I loved about the hymn was, you know, the, the, a core of silence breathes beyond all words, or else the words have little worth. So the value of speech, the value of words, isn't in the words themselves. It's in something that we can't articulate. And then whoever wrote this, uh, Jim, Jim Riley. So, so then Jim's got this idea that in the true religion, whatever that is, um, in the true religion, the true religion gathers up all the texts. He doesn't say and then burns them. <laughs> but he gathers them, and we're going to sort of put them aside. And, and so he says, the true religion gathers up its texts, and then its text, uh, in the beginning was the word. So he, the implication is the true religion is Christianity, but it's in quotes. So he's like saying, you know, the true religion, Christianity, he was, he's sort of making fun of it, gathers up its text, in the beginning was the word, but I seek because I'm smarter than those people. <laughs> Quietness behind that start. And then, because he's really a Taoist, he says, and name it nothing. And then, here's the kicker, much less God. Right? I mean, it's really a put down to God. I name it nothing, much less God. I mean, that's that, I'm not gonna do that. I'm, I'm listening to this and then I, I had to actually read it several times. Did I hear it right? So in the beginning of, of this, you know, in the beginning was the Word. I mean, that's the prologue to the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word becomes flesh, and all of that. And, but if you, and, and the prologue to John is John's take on the opening of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, um, Sometimes how you want to translate, in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth. But the literal Hebrew says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara, created, Elohim, gods, shamayim ve'ha'aretz, heavens and earth. The, 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 what do you call it, the subject of the verb bara isn't God. In the beginning, created God, heaven, and earth. Something else created God. If you take the text in the Hebrew literally, who knows what the author meant. But it fits very nicely with Jim's take here that there was something before God, which is why he says, I'm not going to call it God. I'm just going to, I'm not going to name it at all. It's, it's nothing. And Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, I don't know what to call it, so we'll call it nothing, but I've got to call it something, so we'll call it Tao. But then he says, 
whatever you call it, even if you call it Tao, it ain't the real Tao because you can't really name this thing. So the reason I, I didn't plan to even mention that, <laughs> but it seemed to me to be an interesting way to introduce the topic that I want to talk about. And let me set the topic up in another context. And that is that today is another Jewish holiday. We have one holiday after the other in the fall. So I'm not talking about Israel and Gaza. I just get totally confused about what's going on there and angry. And so you don't want to hear that because it's just opinion. I know nothing more than what Wolf Blitzer knows or any of the other people. So we're not doing that. So I'm going to stick with my topic. But today is a Jewish holiday. It's Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the Torah. Jews read the Torah, the five books of Moses, every week, a different section. Today's the day when we read the final section, which is the death of Moses. And then we read the beginning, which we just recited. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we start all over again. So I have a friend in California who, at her synagogue uh, today, uh, was asked to read the final passage of Deuteronomy, and then to put, they'll pull out uh, another Torah scroll, open it up to the opening passage of Genesis, and then read the beginning of Genesis. She's read the final passage many times in, in, for this holiday, but she's never been asked to read the opening passage. So doing both of them, it literally reduced her to tears. When she was asked, she cried, given that honor. She was so moved. <coughs> so this was a, a major thing to, to people who take it very seriously. I also think it's interesting in the context of Banned Books Week, out of which you know, we've just finished Banned Books Week. And I'm thinking that you know, one of the books that ought to be banned is the Bible, right? It says, like, that's the topic. If we're going to ban books, we ought to start with this one. And the one we could start with is the Bible. And I was going to do a sort of a funny screed about all the sex and violence in the Bible. But if you go on YouTube, there's millions of people who are doing that already. And in the state of Utah, some guy went up and he gave this impassioned speech about, and he read all these portions of the Bible that are really violent and really uh, uh, sexual content. It's both from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And it's been done so many times, it would just be me adding one more layer of, of absurdity. So I wanted to do something a little bit different, but still talk about why it should be, if not banned, restricted. Restricted for whom? For kids. The Bible is not for kids. To prove my point to myself, I went to the Linebar Library to get out Bible books for kids. And they're awful. <laughs> They're terrible. The only way you can make the Bible for kids is to strip the Bible of everything that makes the Bible the Bible. So, first of all, whoever wrote the Bible, and I'm of the opinion, I happen to be a student of Harold Bloom, deceased, but of Yale University, who wrote one of the best books on the Bible called the book of J, just the letter J, uh, whose the J stands for the Yahwist. We know the Bible's written by different people, and one of them is called the Yahwist, uh, after the name of God, YHVH, or <clears throat> in German it was JHVH, 
And from that, the Germans got Jehovah, and that's where Jehovah's Witness comes from. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but according to Bloom, the J writer was a woman, or maybe a, a women's writing circle uh, during King David's time, and they were writing these stories for themselves. And they weren't writing sacred text. They were just writing stories that eventually became sacred text. So they weren't writing, what would you call it? Um, uh, they weren't writing books that were to be worshipped or set, up, set on a pedestal. They were writing stories they wanted you to read because they were trying to make points they wanted you to wrestle with. As adults, they weren't writing kids' books and they weren't writing books that belonged to priests. They were writing books for one another, stories for one another, that they wanted just regular people to hear or read. One of them is the story of Noah, now in, which you can get a couple of copies of at Linebaugh. But if you compare the Noah story in the Bible that these women wrote to the Noah stories in Linebaugh, it's like, what happened? <laughs> I mean, the Noah story in the Bible is the people are evil. All people are evil, except for this one family. And it says in the Bible that Noah is the most righteous per person of his generation. And the rabbis say he was a schmuck, but everyone else was worse. So he wasn't a good person. He was just the best that you know, was, was there. And uh, God's going to wipe out not just the humans. I could live with that. But the dogs, that I don't get. You know? And the bunnies. And, and the, the, the bugs. And, you know, every, and the plants. What's wrong with the plants? What did they do? God's going to wipe out the whole thing. And you can go into a historical, well, there's flood stories in different traditions. I don't care. That's not the point. The point is, here's a story that millions of people hold sacred. And it's about this uh, God who's homicidal and just commits ecocide. It's going to wipe out everything because one species is bad. It's going to wipe out all species. And he's going to save this one species. And then he has them gather up you know, the animals two by two. And then we make this stupid, insipid song, which I was going <laughs> to sing. I was going to ask the choir to learn it. And I said, no, I can't inflict that on anybody. But you know, gathering up two by two and all that clip. So he, you know, bring him on the ark. And then they, just, they describe the ark. But in, in, the, in the story books, everything is bright and sunny, and the animals are, oh, we're going to go for a boat ride. <laughs> and, and, they, and they always show you the ark is floating on the sea, and the water is blue. and it's, They never show you the carcasses of the millions and millions of dead animals and humans that are floating bloated in the water. I mean, that would be a more honest, illustrated Bible. But you can't sell that to kids. That would be horrible. But that's the actual story. Can't tell that story to kids. So if you're going to do the Bible for children, you're going to have to make the Bible dumb, which is what we do, because we teach it to kids. So we have to dumb it down. And when we dumb the Bible down for kids, we dumb the adults down with it so that we no longer deal with the actual existentially horrifying stories that the women in King David's court wrote 
to have us wrestle with real philosophical ideas. We've turned ourselves, in, we've infantilized ourselves, trying to make a book written for adults, help, what, safe for kids. You follow what I'm, what I'm saying? So let's, let's look at what's really going on in, in the Bible. <clears throat> we can start, well, actually, before we even get to that, I, I mentioned Jehovah's Witness. So I don't know if you go to the farmer's market, but my two best things I like best at the farmer's market uh, on the square are the Jehovah's Witness and the crazy fornicating preacher. <laughs> I don't know, you ever see this guy, this guy? I, I love this guy, I love this guy. He, I don't know if he's just incredibly brave or he's got mentally imbalanced. I don't know what his story is, but he's got, he's fearless. He was not there yesterday, but normally he's fearless. He stands there and you're just gonna go get some peaches and he's telling you, you're a fornicator and God is, yeah, and you are fornicator. Oh, you've got apples, you're a fornicator. It's like, what? And, and his, his religion is all about God. <coughs> God's going to kill you. God's going to damn you. God hates you. Unless, of course, you, you have his Jesus. Because there's lots of Jesuses around in, in Murfreesboro, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are right across the street. But there, God hates those too. Those people too, because they're fornicators. This guy's not a fornicator. I don't think any woman would get within. <laughs> but, because who wants to get near this guy? He's nuts. But that's another story. So anyway, he's, he wasn't there. But the Jehovah's Witnesses are there. And they're very nice. And I always talk to them. And I talk to the, the group. They, they usually have two or three groups. So I talk to each group. And I come with my dog. And they like dogs. And they have dogs. So yesterday, I'm talking to the group, one group. And they told me that in Jehovah's Witness world, it's uh, reading Job time. So they're reading the book of Job. I love the book of Job. Book of Job is the most honest book in the Bible when it comes to God. And it gives you the God that is fearful. And that's the God of the women who wrote these early stories in Genesis too. But the Jehovah's Witnesses could not accept that about their, their God. So we had this interesting conversation about God and, and Job and Satan. And they bent over, they, they turned themselves into pretzels and they turned the text inside out and upside down to save God from what the text actually says and what the author of the text wants us to wrestle with and what the Bible in the early stories wants us to wrestle with and why the Bible isn't for kids and why it should be restricted and taken out of the kids' section. So what happens in the book of Job? So they wanted me to believe that Satan runs the world. I said, what? They said, yes, it says in the book of Revelations that Satan runs the world. So I said, well, I don't know anything about the book of Revelations. It's not my book, but it's not in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And oh, yes, Satan runs the world. I said, but isn't God all powerful? He says, yeah, of course. Then God lets Satan run the world. Oh, no. <laughs> well, what? It's, it's, you can't have it both ways. You know, if God could keep Satan from running the world and then chooses not to do that, then God chooses to allow Satan to run the world. It, it's just a binary. But they couldn't accept that. Satan runs the world. 
okay. And so Satan comes, you know, in, in, the, in the actual text, in the Hebrew, Satan and God are having conversation, and Satan in, in Hebrew just means the adversary, and Satan's job in Job is to run around the earth, this is runs up and down the earth, <clears throat> reporting back to God what's going on, good and bad. He's, he's literally the prosecuting attorney. And God says to him, do you see my friend Job? Isn't he great? Doesn't he love me? And Satan, being a neo-Freudian, I guess, Satan says, aha, God has, um, what, what would you call it? low self-esteem. God's got a problem. He, he's wondering, does, you know, he, he, he's really not sure Job loves him. He might love him because God gives him everything. Job's healthy, he's got a lovely family, he's got kids, boys and girls, he's got a business and all this stuff, successful. And so Satan says, of course Job loves you. You've given him everything. And, you, and God says, you think so? That's why he loves me? He loves me for my money? You know, like that? <laughs> and then God says, well, let's see, maybe you're right. So go ahead, don't kill him, because that'll ruin the test. Do everything else, but don't kill him. Let's see if he still loves me. So Satan is, given the, is empowered by God. And what does he do? He kills Job's business and his servants, and then kills Job's children. And then finally, you know, takes away Job's health, and Job never curses God. Job's wife says, curse God and die like a man. <laughs> and, and Job says, don't be foolish. We have to accept the good and bad from God, which is crucial to the way these early writers thought about God. God is good and bad, and you, there's nothing you can do about it. So, um, so in the end, Job gets a new business, and his health comes back, and he gets new kids. Better than the old kids. <laughs> and we know they're better than the old kids, because the old kids, only the boys were named. But in the new, when he gets new kids, the girls are named. So they're superior status. So anyway, they, the Jehovah's Witnesses are telling me that this is all Satan's fault. But in the actual book of Job, it's God who does it. And Job knows it's God who does it, because Job demands that God tell Job why he's doing it. And when, Job, when God responds to Job, his response is, where were you when I created the universe? Well, that's a non sequitur. That's irrelevant. I mean, if I were writing the book, I would have Job say, I don't need an alibi. You do. <laughs> you know? That's a stupid question. Then he goes through all these things. Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? And do you have the strength to... to, to uh, hook the sea monsters with a, with, you know, through the nose with a ring. And to everything, Job should say, what's the point of all these things you're telling me? I want to know why you're doing horrible things in the world. If you're that strong, why do you allow this stuff to happen? And in the end, Job just says, okay, you win. You're not going to tell me what's happening. So I find comfort. Some translations, Job says, <clears throat> You know, I despise myself, but that's a bad translation. That's English, but not Hebrew. In the Hebrew, Job says, I find comfort realizing there's no answer, basically, and that the universe is just mad, and bad things happen, and good things happen, and there's no rhyme or reason, and I take comfort in the fact that there is no, there's no one in charge. It's just what it is. That's what the ladies in the, in the, or, or, the early stories in Genesis are saying the same thing. 
And that's what they want us to wrestle with. The God of Genesis is not the God of the children's books. God of Genesis is not a nice person. Neither is the God of Job. He's not a, a bad person. He's just amoral. He just does stuff. So, in the early stories, you get uh, the, the flood, right? So, God just wipes out everything. Then, after the flood, you get the Tower of Babel. So, what are the people trying to do in the Tower of Babel? The commentators want to say, oh, they're trying to build a tower to get up to God. They're going to storm God's, you know, palace or something and take over. They want to be gods. That's not what it says in the Bible. That's just commentary. The Bible says they're going to spread out. God wants them to spread out, and they're afraid of going so far apart that they'll lose touch with their neighbors. So they want to put a tower in the middle of town so that that'll be so tall that however far they go out, they can say, oh, that's, that's where we started. So we can go back and say, hey, I'll meet you at the tower in, in a couple hours and we can have coffee. You know what I'm saying? It was a landmark to go back to. It wasn't a storming of the heavens. And God says, I don't want that either. So he knocks the tower down and he makes them all speak languages so they can't meet and have coffee. God wants chaos. God likes chaos. Later on, you get Abraham. So God chooses Abraham, go do all this stuff. So what kind of guy does God choose? So Abraham's no real hero. Abraham has, before he has children, Abraham, you know, to save his own skin, pimps out his wife to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to kill me. Go sleep with Pharaoh. He really wants you. Right? You know, so he, he's not exactly, this is not family values. Then he has his first son, Ishmael, and then Sarah, his, his wife, says, I don't like the fact that you had this boy with my, my servant, Hagar. Send them away. So they give him enough water and food for a day, send him out in the desert. They're going to die. And Abraham says, eh, okay, fine. And then when he has another son with Sarah, God says, let's kill that one. And Abraham says, oh, okay, let's do that. So Abraham's going to commit manslaughter with regard to Ishmael, and then homicide with regard to uh, Isaac. And, and God's okay with all of this. So the, now don't think of this as, as a sacred text. These are human women writing stories, you know, dramas about men, about society, about the brutality of, of life. Because the God they're talking about is really a stand-in for the way the, their lives are experienced, the way life is. It's just not nice. There's good things that happen to you and horrible things that happen to you. You have kids, and then they're murdered. You have a successful business, and then you lose it. You have health, and then you don't. It's just the way life is. There's no way to avoid all these things. You follow what, what I'm saying? That's their worldview. That's what they're writing about. Religion wants to make it. No, no, no. If you're a good person, God will make it good. Everything's going to be fine for you. And then when that doesn't pan out, they go, but not in this world. No, in the next world. <laughs> but these women are telling you there's, there's really no, no escaping the harrowing nature of life. 
And there are no heroes in their stories. There are heroines, a lot of heroines. I mean, they're women. They write about uh, heroines. So I'm going to name some, just because we don't get their names usually. So there's Eve. Eve is a heroine of the Garden of Eden story. Adam is a doofus. We've talked about this before. But Eve risks everything for wisdom. Adam gets kicked out of the garden, not Eve. Eve leaves under her own power because to, to, to guide Adam, who doesn't have a clue what he's doing outside the garden or what he was doing inside the garden. So Eve was a hero. There was uh, the, the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. When Pharaoh said, kill all the Hebrew babies when, you, when the mothers give birth, they didn't. They refused. They gave birth and they went back to Pharaoh and said, the babies popped out before we showed up. So they, they refused to listen to the, the murderous Pharaoh. There was uh, Jochebed, Moses' mother, who saves her son by putting him on the, you know, in a basket and send him down the, uh, the Nile. Then there's the princess, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, who finds him in the Nile. And it says in the story, we don't know her name, but it says in the story, she opened up the basket and it was a Hebrew baby because he was a circumcised baby. So she knew he was a Hebrew. She knew he was supposed to be dead. Instead, she brings him into her father's palace and raises him as an Egyptian prince. Right? You can see the Disney documentary, Prince of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> or the earlier one with uh, Charlton Heston and all that. So these are women who just stand up to this, this, the most powerful godlike creatures of their time, you know, these men. And then there's Moses' wife, Zipporah, who when, when God says to Moses, go back to Egypt and be their, their savior, uh, then God tries to kill Moses on the way. I mean, the God is, is nuts. So he tries to kill Moses on the way back to Egypt because, we don't know exactly why, but it seems like from the story, uh, because Moses didn't circumcise um, the, the, the son he had with Zipporah, so Zipporah figures that out. So she takes the baby, circumcises the baby, takes the foreskin, and rubs it on, it looks like it rubs it on Moses, and then God leaves Moses alone. So she saves Moses' life. His mother saved his life, then his wife saves his life. You know, this, if Freud had been alive. <laughs> but, okay. So the men are problematic. The women are, are powerful heroes in this story. But it's not just the Hebrew Bible that gives you this wild, mani maniacal God. Look at the New Testament. So, so Christians are often apt to say, well, that's the Hebrew, God, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament, no, he's great. He's just love. Now read the book of Revelations. <laughs> you know, he's going to wipe out everybody, just like in the Noah story. And then you get, you know, or, or just look at, at Jesus. Why do we need Jesus? You know, it's, it, it says that, that you need Jesus because to be saved. But if you're not saved, God's going to kill you or damn you for all eternity. In, in other words, God has to, um, God's son has to die to keep God from killing you. I mean, that's sick. Right? And if you think Jesus is God, then God has to commit suicide. The only way God can stop himself from murdering people again, like he did in the Noah story, is, geez, I can't kill the people. I'll have to kill myself. But since I don't have a self, I'll have to make a self, become a person, and then die. 
And God just makes this, the, the whole thing up, <clears throat> if you take God literally. God has to create a whole scenario where God's going to destroy everything, and then God has to become a person so that God can be crucified, so that God doesn't destroy everything. It's incredibly crazy. Unless Mark, who's the original gospel writer, Mark's gospel is first, not in the book, but in chronology. Unless Mark, like the early women writers of uh, Genesis, is trying to tell you that the universe is mad. It's just crazy. So Mark's gospel is different than all the other ones. Um, I forget who called it this, but they call, uh, um, Mark's gospel is called the, the existential gospel because it gives you no hope. <laughs> so in Mark's gospel, Jesus only says one thing on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he must have really said that, because the other gospels say that too. But they soften it. Because then they say, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Or, you know, he's got all these other things to say. I think he says seven things in John's gospel. In Mark's gospel, written only 40 years after the actual crucifixion, in Mark's gospel, Jesus just says, what happened? Where are you? I'm on the cross. Hello? <laughs> no, he would whistle if he weren't stuck. So he's going, hello? We had a deal. God abandons him. <clears throat> and then he dies. That's the last thing he says. And then he dies. And then who sticks with him? Nobody except the women. You know, it's called Mark's Gospel. We don't know who wrote it. Maybe it's more women like the women who wrote these early Genesis stories. Because who sticks with Jesus? Only the women. It's written in the text. And then who goes, after the Sabbath is over, who goes to clean his body and prepare him for proper burial? Only the women. So I'll, I'll just read it to you. It says, And when Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spice, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early the first day of the week, that was Sunday, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone was rolled back. It was very large. So if you've been to the tomb, you see how big these stones are. But they're perfectly round and they're in troughs. It's the three of them could have rolled themselves. But anyway, it's fine. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, don't be amazed. I mean, too late. They were already amazed, but okay. <laughs> Don't be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. So they get the first charge. Who knows who the angel, this guy is an angel, yes. And he says, go tell the disciples, Jesus has gone to Galilee. Meet Jesus in Galilee. So the women run out, they, they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anybody, for they were afraid. That's how it ended originally. Later, an editor put in a thing, but then later they told everybody, and they all got together, and everything's fine. But the original ending of Mark was nothing. In Mark's original vision, 
Jesus says one thing on the cross, God, what happened to you? Where are you? And the whole story ends with the women going, I'm too scared to say anything. Obviously, Christianity is you know, going to be born, something happens, so they, they try to fix it. But what Mark is telling you, and what the women in Genesis are telling you, is that life is really bizarre. And that under this whole mess is this sense of a fear, fearsome God who is, I don't want to say all about death, that's not, that's not fair, but who, who does not shirk from exposing us to the horrors of what it is to be alive and does not save us, but leaves us in, I don't know, to face the phenomenon of reality and all its light and all its darkness. I tried to explain this to Jehovah's Witness. They were not having any of it. I said I'd come to their house and knock on the door, but they didn't tell me where they lived. And I said, it's, it's exactly what is said in Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I create light, I create darkness, I create good, I create evil. I do all these things. Most of us want a God who's light and love and peace and all that. But whoever wrote, there's a subterranean text throughout the Hebrew Bible and parts of, parts of the Hebrew Bible and parts of the New Testament where that's not what God is. And my argument is that these are the parts that matter. These are the parts that adults need to wrestle with. And these are the parts that we strip out when we make the Bible for kids, whether it's in the library or in our churches or in our synagogues. And when we do that, we lose it for ourselves. And we dumb ourselves down and we lose the, the, the opportunity to discuss the darker side of life that all of us face. And we, and we cannot escape, even through religion and, and theology. So, this is the end. Jesus dies afraid. Why have you forsaken me? The women flee the tomb afraid. So, what's the good news? That's what gospel means. What's the good news? The good news is in Proverbs, number nine, verse 10. It says, the fear of this God is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of this God is insight. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of God is insight. That's the good news. Fear leads to wisdom, knowledge to insight. So what I want to discuss when we come back is why. What is the value of fear? How can fear lead us to wisdom? And why, when we, when we avoid this fearsome knowledge, why, when we turn everything, it's going to be okay, everything is all light and love and suffering, and, and our God is just about goodness and peace and love, when all of that, do we rob ourselves of the fear that we need to trigger the wisdom that maybe is our only salvation? We'll see.
Okay, thank you very much.